You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, January 31st, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everyone. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Dr. Ray Grief. Ray, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Well, thank you for having me, and hello to everyone. Hey, Ray won the auction at TAM 8, at the Amazing Meeting 8 in July. Uh, he bid for and won a guest rogue spot on the SGU. We appreciated his support by, by bidding, and we're happy to have him on. So just for a little bit of background, Ray is a, is a physician. You got your MD from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in 1985. Um, I don't know if you wanted to age yourself that way, but you did. <laughs> no problem. Then, uh, you've taught at medical schools of University of Wisconsin at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. You uh, have done research on with animals and humans, and you are, I think, uh, most specifically and probably why you were anxious to get on the show, the president and co-founder of Americans for Medical Advancement, or the AFMA, which is a not-for-profit organization that promotes biomedical research and the practice of medicine based on critical thinking and our current understanding of evolutionary and developmental biology, complex systems, genomics, and science. So, uh, but the AFMA is opposed to the use of animals for predictive research, right? As a predictive model yes. for humans. So, yes. So That's go exactly ahead. Exactly right. Yeah. So tell us exactly what you mean by that. Yeah, there, we, our position is basically twofold. Uh, number one, animals have been and are being successfully used in many scientific endeavors. Uh, for example, they can be used as replacement parts for humans. For example, an, an aortic valve replacement. Uh, animals can be used as heuristic devices from which you can develop new ideas for research. You can use them to discover basic physiological principles or to find conserved processes and so on and so on. And our position is that some members of the animal protection movement really need to acknowledge that these uses of animals are scientifically viable. Now, the ethics surrounding these uses are a completely separate issue and therefore a different discussion. But the science on this is very straightforward. And really and truly, position number one does not get us in much trouble. Position number two, on the other hand, does. And position number two is that the animal model community or the animal research community or the animal experimentation community, whatever you want to call them, uh, on the other hand, needs to acknowledge that animal models, even non-human primates and even genetically modified animals, cannot be used to predict human response to drugs and disease. Now, I'm using the word predict in the scientific and quantifiable sense of the word, uh, which in science in general and in medical science in particular as you know, involves the calculation of sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, and negative predictive value. So there's no doubt that animals and humans occasionally share responses to drugs and disease, but we maintain that they do not do this often enough for animal models to be offered to society as predictive for human response. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Uh, despite this, uh, the FDA and the EPA mandate that animals be used as predictive models. And I would also add that NIH funds animal models that are used in this fashion. 
And we maintain that this is, in fact, anti-science. This is not based on science. And I would even go so far as to say that it's fraudulent. And that's what we talk about in our book, Animal Models in Light of Evolution. We talk about the empirical evidence behind our position. And we place the empirical evidence into the context of evolution, complex systems, and the philosophy of science. So I think this is a very interesting discussion, the whole notion of what is really the scientific value of using animal models. Basically, you develop an animal model of a human disease, and then you do research on that animal model as a way of, of learning about that, the human disease or predicting the, how humans may respond to, to interventions. Drugs, when you say animal model, though, do you mean like you're using a real animal and you're coming yeah. up – with a disease that we you think would give you some insight into how it, it would affect humans? Exactly. Actually, the easiest example is to use drug testing. We can certainly talk about animals in disease research, and, and that's fair game. I mean, that's, that's very viable. But the easiest example is animals in toxicity testing. So, you know, you test aspirin on a guinea pig. What does it do to the guinea pig? And what difference does that make in terms of whether or not we decide to give it to human beings? And our point is that there's a lot of studies out there that have done head-to-head comparisons between what animals showed in relationship to drug toxicity and what humans eventually showed, and the sensitivity and specificity for these things are just terrible. They yield positive predictive values around, you know, 0.3, 0.35, somewhere in that neighborhood. So what I say a lot, and this really offends a lot of people, so I'll go ahead and say it now, is that this is about what you would expect from astrology. Okay, yeah. a positive predictive value of 0.35 is not science. That's guessing. But but you're talking about predicting, say, toxicity of drugs in humans based upon their toxicity in animals, for example. Right, right. And again, that's that's the easiest example to talk about. That's where the most data is and so on and so on. Right. But there's lots of other uses of animal models as well. So I think you know, reading through you know your articles and reading about this topic, I found myself agreeing with a lot of the premises. And I think there's a lot of common ground, but also finding that the promoters of the animal model as a, as a mechanism of research also agree on a, on a lot of the premises, but maybe the ultimate conclusions that are being drawn are where the differences, differences are. So let's focus a little bit on where I think the common ground is. Like you make a very evolutionary argument that hey, people are different from people, people are different from animals, and you know, the, we, can, we actually have a pretty deep understanding now of the evolutionary roots of those differences, um, and certainly the response of even an individual person to a, a medication, for example, can't really predict how somebody else is going to respond, let alone a different species. So yes, I think, exactly. Yeah, so we, we, I think that we, that's, that's demonstrably correct. Thank you. I think what, where the difference comes in is in what, what's the ultimate lesson do we take from that? I think what I'm hearing from you when I, and what I'm getting from the, the, your side is that this means that they, they're of such limited scientific value or of no scientific value as to be either worthless to counterproductive. Um, whereas what I'm hearing from the animal model advocates is that well, you just have to use it correctly. You have to decide, you have to validate an animal model, use it in an intelligent way, understand its limitations, and then you can derive some useful information from it that will inform later human research. You, of course, you have to do the later human research. You can't base 
uh, your conclusions on the animal research. Uh, and we've, we say this all the time on the show. Like these people are trying to you know, sell this product based upon you – know, they're extrapolating from animal research, and you can't do that. You can't extrapolate from animal research in order to make clinical claims or know that something is going to be effective in humans. Again, we, I think we agree on that premise. But that doesn't mean that there's no utility. There, I think there are good animal models and there are bad animal models. And, and animal models need to be individually validated and we need to understand with the ways in which they are useful and the ways in which they are not useful. And if, you, and if done properly, it can, uh, be, it can be utilized effectively. Would you sure, be willing to accept that that's sort of limited yeah. endorsement? Yeah, let's let's just make sure we're comparing apples with apples. Yeah. The only thing that Shanks and I are saying is that animal models are not predictive for humans. That's it. Yeah. And actually, in the grand scheme of things, that is a very modest claim. But let me assure you, based on the debates I've done and the literature that we've published in and so on and so on, that is a highly controversial claim among people who use animals in research. Okay, the way you just explained their position is something that I could live with very easily. And in fact, in animal models in light of evolution, we say essentially what you just said, point blank. We list nine ways that animals can be used. Some of those ways you referred to and what you just said. No, we don't have a problem with that. What we have a problem with is when those claims are exaggerated. Yeah. Okay. When, when the animal model community says, and we quote them uh, ad nauseum uh, in the book, that we can predict what this drug is going to do based on human studies, we can predict what an HIV vaccine is going to do based on animal studies, and so on and so on. That's the rub, okay? The, there is no argument that animals can be used to inform us on uh, conserved processes, on pathways for uh, for uh, cancer, on pathways for Alzheimer's research, and so on and so on. There's no argument there. But just to clarify, because I think we're we're drilling down pretty deep, and we're we're, we're slicing this pretty thin. So I want to get I want to get specific. So I again I think again maybe one of the one of the problems I had with trying to dissect this issue is that it seems like it can get down to a false dichotomy of animal models are predictive or they're not predictive. Whereas I think the way that they're used is that they are partially predictive. They don't tell you whether or not a certain drug is going to have an effect or be toxic in a human, but it gives you a uh, a, a certain uh, probability, you know, that it's either more or less likely to be. So, and, and, and I, th- I think it was telling that uh, in one of your essays you said you 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 extended that to you know studying. A drug, for example, in one group of people doesn't tell you how the drug is going to react in other individuals. That's true. Exactly. It's, not, it's not predictive, but that doesn't mean the research is not valuable. It gives you a probability. I can't tell you exactly how a patient's going to respond to a medication based upon studies in other people, but I could say that there's a better chance that it's going to be helpful than to be harmful. It can give you a probabilistic uh, statement about the likelihood of that person benefiting from the medication. And I think that's that probabilistic information is where animal models come in, not conclusions about what's, what's going to be effective. There, there's two points I would make. Number one, if you can express that in numbers, that probability, I would be fascinated to see it because I've spent the last 10 years looking through the medical and scientific literature, and I have not seen those numbers. The only numbers that I can talk intelligently about 
are the ones that I quoted earlier, positive predictive values in the neighborhood of 0.35. That does not give me valuable information in deciding whether or not to bring a drug to clinical trials. Okay, and the second thing that I would point out is that Shanks and I have never said that animal-based research is worthless or that it's not valuable or, or any of those things. That is a straw man argument that is that we are frequently accused of saying. But if you re even read some of the articles we've written, even in the lay literature, uh, we come out very strongly that animal experiments can be of value in a number of different ways. But when you start saying things like they're partially predictive, I don't know what that means. And to me, that sounds like a weasel word. That sounds like something I would hear, you know, from from the woo community. No, uh, I, mean, I think you, I think I gave a very specific example. If I if we do studies on a drug in a thousand people, and eighty percent of those people get better, right? For example, on that medication, just to just to use representative numbers. And now I have sure, an individual sure. patient in front of me. That that data doesn't tell me exactly how that person's going to respond to the to the drug, but it I, it does tell me that they have an eighty percent chance of responding oh, absolutely. positively to absolutely. the drug. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I, I think one hundred percent on that. But I don't see those numbers in the animal model literature. That, that, that's my point. Okay, I agree with that, but I think that's because it hasn't been studied. And, and it, it, it's only been very stu studied in a very limited way. So I would totally agree. And so I think this is a fascinating question. I like it when we step back and say, how is this whole strategy working? You know, how is this whole that, strategy right. of that's using animal models working? Let's study this in more detail. But wouldn't you agree? And I, you know, I did, spent some time doing a literature research and didn't come up with much. I just don't think there's a lot of data out there. And I think we actually do need to gather this data. Yeah, I, I, based on the data that is there, I would maintain that my position is the correct position. Now, the nice thing about science, and I think we're going to get into this later on when we talk about some of the news items, the nice thing about science is that my position is falsifiable. Right. Okay, if you if you want to look at stroke research, for example, and you can come up with an animal model that, you know, retrospectively matches human data and prospectively matches human data, then you can say that that animal model does predict human response and so on and so on. Yeah. So all I'm saying is that based on the literature to date, and, you know, I think there's a fair number of studies that, that support what I'm saying, but based on the literature to date, you cannot make the claim that animal models predict human response to drug and disease. And if, if I could, Stephen, I'd just like to very briefly say that, in my opinion, the strength of our argument is not the empirical data. In my opinion, the strength of the argument is in evolutionary biology and complexity theory. Mm -hmm. And I, I have always said, if you understand evolutionary biology or complex systems, that almost precludes the use of one species to do very specific predictions for perturbation to a complex system, i.e. another mammal. So I think that's really the strength of the argument. I'm not trying to, to discount the empirical evidence. I'm a physician. Right. I live and die by empirical evidence. Uh, but I think the stronger evidence lies in the theory. Yeah, I think probably where um, you get into a lot of like strong opinions uh, is uh, for those researchers who – have examples 
of research where they think that the animal models have been very helpful, but there hasn't been any systematic review to quantify it. But they say, but I know all the data because I, I know the literature. So let me give you one example um, just from my own subspecialty. Uh, there is a the, the SOD1 mouse, right? So this is a mouse that has right. a mutation right. in, the, in, the, in the superoxide dismutase gene, and they get ALS. Right. That that has that animal model has been extremely predictive in terms of the response to treatment of humans with the same mutation with the SOD1 mutation. It hasn't been very predictive of of uh the human response in sporadic ALS. So there's a situation where I would say, you know, the ALS researchers who who know the literature would tell you, yes, this is a great animal model for humans with SOD1 mutation and it's a very problematic Maybe not really a very even useful one. There's a lot of internal debate, even if it's even useful for humans with sporadic ALS. But but it's a home run when it comes to humans with with the SOD1 mutation. So that's you know I'm picking an example where a human and the mouse have the exact same mutation. But that that's because I just wanted to pick a really um, clear example to show that well there there are some animal models that are pretty well validated, even though there probably isn't a single study published out there that looked at every, that, you know, that reviewed the literature to quantify how predictive it was. But the researchers who are familiar with the literature know that it, know that it's very predictive. That, what would you say to that? Well, let's face it. If, if you study, you know, 10,000 different genetically modified mice, th- there's bound to be one that's, that you're going to hit the home run with. Okay, so so even if we grant, for the sake of argument, that that everything that you have said is totally true, and I'm not doubting it, I'm just saying I'm not you know familiar yeah. enough with that literature to comment. But let's assume that that is 100% true. In evaluating the paradigm, for lack of a better word, you can't just look at one animal model of one disease. You have to look at the entire thing. And again, if, if let's say there's 10,000 different you know genetically modified mice out there. Well, if I'm going to fund research practice A over research practice B, I want to know how research practice A does on the whole. There may be instances where research practice A really hits the home run. No, no question about it. And just based on statistics alone, I would think that you would have some animal models that reproduce the human condition to a T. Again, do right. do anything enough times, and you're bound to find find correlations. And correlation can be causation in this case. Ray, are you talking about? Uh, are you talking about like something specific though? Like a specific animal model might be the way that a particular virus or a particular chemical has a reaction in a particular part of the body, but not everything about the animal. Correct? No. What what I'm talking about, and since we're on the topic of genes, I'll just. Uh, stay there. There's uh, two genes that cause San Filippo syndrome and I think phenylketonuria in humans that when they exist in monkeys, they're the normal form. In other words, the monkeys don't show any sign of uh, disease or an abnormal condition whatsoever. So the problem with picking examples is both sides can cherry pick. Yeah. And wh- what what I'm saying about sensitivity and specificity and positive predictive value and so forth is when these things have been looked at on the whole, okay, you know, take away the the cherry pick data. When you look at the whole paradigm on the whole, it fails to be predictive. Now that does not mean, and Stephen is making a very good point, that does not mean that every single animal model out there fails. Okay. It just means that as a paradigm, uh, the thing fails. 
Let me make one more point, though. So, I, but see, to me, that kind of sounds like you're trying to answer the question: Does surgery work? And like, do, do animal models work? And I'm not sure that that's a that that's really a meaningful question. In that, the answer, of course, is well, some surgeries work and some don't. And you have to ask: Does it work for what? So some surgeries may work for some things and with risks and benefits, and other surgeries don't. But you want to sort of pronounce, make some kind of final pronouncement on surgery as a medical intervention. And I just think that that's, I don't know what, you know, what, the, what the utility of that is. Uh, I, I would rather say, well, let's just figure out which ones work and for what, and then we'll apply them individually based upon the evidence. Same thing with the animal models. If, you know, there are, if there are validated animal models, then use them. And, if, and if, they're, if they're not validated or they're questionable, then they shouldn't be used. And they should and so that's that's the approach I'm taking. But I understand how you want to avoid maybe the overuse of animal models as a general strategy because you think that it's being, you know, again, being maybe promoted without validation in many cases. Well, there, there's, I would say two things. Uh, number one, I think where the rubber hits the road on this is, again, in drug and chemical testing vis-a-vis uh, -vis the FDA and the EPA. Okay, right mm -hmm. now, even the pharmaceutical companies are saying in the peer review literature, animal testing does not work. It doesn't work for bioavailability. It doesn't work for toxicity. It doesn't work for metabolism. And yet we're being required to do it. Okay. Yeah. That's and a legitimate also, point. I agree. That's a very specific application and that, that okay. can be answered. So, so but, yeah. but that is the prediction problem right there. That is prediction. Now, again, if you want to go to disease research, it gets a little more complicated. The drug research thing is very straightforward. The animal either predicts bioavailability or it doesn't. Right. Okay. Uh, in the disease research thing, there's really a fine line between using animals as a heuristic and using them as a predictive model. But that gets me to, m to my second point. Really and truly, Stephen, I don't s hear you saying anything that I necessarily disagree with. What yeah. I do disagree with, and I can show you quote after quote in the medical literature, is when a basic researcher says he's using this animal because it's going to predict what a human is going to do in response to this drug or this disease and so on and so on. And when it doesn't work, he comes back and says, well, this is just basic research. It's not supposed to be predictive. So this all depends, in my opinion, on the claim being made. Okay, If the animal-based research community made less uh, exaggerated claims, and let's face it, the only reason they do it is to get grant money. Yeah. But if they made less exaggerated claims, I don't think I would have a problem with what they're saying. If they want to say, we want to use animals for basic research, and hey, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, scientifically there's no issues on, on my end or, okay. or, or, with, or with Shanks. But again, as we point out many times in animal models in light of evolution, that's not what they're saying. Yeah. Well, as I said, I think this is a fascinating discussion because I do like it. It's like a meta question of how we yes, should even be right. going about research. So, all right, well, let's let's go on with the rest of the show. Evan, I didn't mean to skip you. We're going to do this day in, in science and skepticism. What do you got for us? Yeah, so uh, today is uh, February 5th, 2011, and it was on this date in 1897 that the Indiana State House legislator passed a bill, Bill number 246, which in effect gave 3.2 exactly as the value of the number pi. Wow. Did you guys yeah. know about this? I did. I did hear about that. I heard about it and then Is forgot it? about it. 
<laughs> well, I'm reminding you of it. Thank you. It, it comes up a lot because it's iconic, and in, in, you know, it's a example of a, a political body dictating just, a mathematical yeah. fact. And, and so this comes up a lot in the um, you know criticizing creationists who are trying to use political mechanisms to dictate the science of evolution. This is just a more in your face. Yeah, this is a more in your face kind of example where they're trying to dictate the value of a mathematical constant. You know. This this bill never became actual law, mind you, but it did get far enough down the chain of the process that it was on its way to becoming law until a professor from Purdue University, uh, who happened to be at the state capitol on a certain day to, uh, for some other reasons, read what was going on, and he said, wait a minute, people, we got a problem here, and basically had to do a quick class for the assemblyman. <laughs> In, in the in the house and explain exactly why yeah. uh, this was uh, this was going to create a big problem. But did, so, did you find out why they even got involved in this at all? Why did the state legislature think that they needed to dictate what the value of pi was? What, what was the was there some history there? Yeah, well, he uh, there was, a bill was proposed by this gentleman named Goodwin, who was a uh, physician at the time, and uh, here's what he proposed. He, he titled the bill an act for introducing a new mathematical truth and offered as a contribution to education to used to be used by the state of Indiana free of cost by paying any royalties and so forth. He thought he was basically contributing to the better education of people by being able to do this. And essentially what he what he did to make a long story short is he's trying to describe a circle using a series of uh, straight lines, squares, rectangle, uh, squares and triangles. Yeah. Um, which, so he was a crank who was trying to impose his crankery upon the legislature. That's right. That's right. Okay. And he and he was friends with one of the people uh, in, who was in in the body and who got it got the ball rolling for him. Uh, yeah, it definitely was a crank. <laughs> but Evan, what do you get when you cut a jack o' lantern by its diameter? Tell me. Pumpkin pie. <laughs> Uh, nice. I deliberately looked up the worst pie joke I could find. <laughs> Good work. That it gets my vote the worst one, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I liked it. Uh, well, the first news item we're going to talk about also involves a bit of crankery. Uh, Dana Ullman. Do you guys know who Dana Ullman is? No. So comedian? Dana, he is no. a comedian. He's otherwise known as a homeopath. Um, <laughs> he, so he's, he's notorious notorious in internet circles as for being a homeopath apologist. In fact, there was a, a version of Godwin's Law, you know, it's one of those internet laws that like, uh, you know, in an internet, you know, flame war, you're always, ro- the f- person who's wrong is the first one to raise, you know, the name of Hitler and, you know, there's all these corollaries. And one of those is if you're Dana Ullman. <laughs> so anyway, Dana Ullman now blogs for the HuffPo. Oh no, oh, the, Huffington, the Huffington Post, and so he you know, wonderfully provides blog uh, fodder for me and others. So he wrote an, a recent post, which I described as uh, the braggadocio of homeopathy, basically just puffing up homeopathy in any way that he can. He does what he does. He he cherry picks. The published data, uh, in order to make the claim that there's evidence for homeopathy, and then he starts lambasting the skeptics for ignoring the evidence. Uh, he claims that skeptics say that there is no evidence for for homeopathy, which is a little bit of a distortion. If you actually listen to to what we say, we say there's no good evidence, right? So that's not that there has never been a, a positive study. 
it's that the, this, the positive studies are all crap. And systematic <laughs> reviews show a clear pattern of uh, the, the, better the, stu- yeah, the better the study, the smaller the effect, and the <laughs> best studies tend to be negative. And you know, after multiple systematic reviews show that there is, no, there is insufficient evidence to conclude that homeopathy works for any single indication. Homeopathy works for nothing. Basically, plus it's about as implausible an idea as you can get. But that's yeah, another, yeah, yeah. In case, in case there's somebody out there who still doesn't know what it is, I mean, homeopathy is the notion that if you, you that like cures like, so you choose a, a remedy based upon the symptoms that it causes in a healthy person, and then in in ultra dilutions. I mean, Ullman always says in small doses, which is again, it's a distortion. It's not in small doses; it's in non-existent doses. You dilute it into nothingness, so that it's just water. Then you place that water on a sugar pill, and it's then this magical essence is going to somehow cure the the, the symptoms that again that it would cause in in a healthy person. It's all magical thinking and superstition. It's it's no surprise that the that the literature shows that the actual people who've for whatever reason bothered to study it in people, it doesn't work. But Ullman has this one paragraph where he says. Most clinical research conducted on homeopathic medicines that has been published in peer-reviewed journals have shown positive clinical results. So that's even if that's true, it's irrelevant. It's not the number of studies; it's the quality of the studies that matters. Um, but then he cites. So I, I went through it and I, and I wrote it for my blog on Neurologica today. I wrote. Um, I went through the, his references, and they don't support. Uh-oh. Well, they don't support what he says. So that's like a, that's a typical. You know, a sign of horrible scholarship is when you make a claim, you have a reference next to that claim, but the reference doesn't support the claim that you just made. What so, what happens? exactly is that called? Lying with footnotes. Yeah, right. Lying with yeah. It's just, it's either sloppy scholarship or it's deceptive. It's intellectually dishonest. I mean, take your pick. Stupid. Footnote so, in the mouth. I can't go through every one, but just to give, there's a couple of really juicy examples here. He, he quotes one study to support this notion that most homeopathic or more you know, homeopathic studies are positive than negative. In, in that very study, the conclusion was the results of our meta-analysis are not compatible with the hypothesis that, hypothesis that the clinical effects of homeopathy are completely due to placebo. So that's sort of this, they're saying that homeopathic remedies are not just placebo. Uh, this is, uh, you know, they're trying to make this sound like a, that the data is favorable. But then they have to say this. However, we found insufficient evidence from these studies that homeopathy is clearly efficacious for any single clinical condition. So homeopathy <laughs> doesn't actually work for anything, <laughs> but it's not indistinguishable from placebo. Of course, others have reviewed the same data and said it's indistinguishable from placebo. Uh, and a systematic review of systematic reviews published by Edzard Ernst, which I think is the definitive word on this, shows that homeopathy does not work for any single indication. So even the very reference that Ullman cites said that there's insufficient evidence to show that it works for anything. And this is in a paragraph where Ullman is trying to say that there's evidence to show that homeopathy works for all these specific indications. For the, you know, the other list of causes, he cites a bunch of either he cherry-picked studies or he, he picked studies which don't conclude that it works or that um, the, the studies themselves were terrible or they were his own reviews of studies. Or, you know, they're unblinded, whatever. There's, there's, he, he actually didn't establish with his references any of the individual claims that he made, but I've got to give you the best example. He claims that um, homeopathy works for influenza, and he references a Cochrane review of Acilococcinum for influenza. 
Have we talked about the story of a silicoxinum on the SGU before? No. I think I remember that name. So this is a, this is so a, no. this is a very common uh, homeopathic remedy in quotes, right? Remedy, mm. and it's you know Mark Chrislip wrote a wonderful article on it for Science Based Medicine, which we'll link to. You know the silliness goes beyond just the normal homeopathic silliness because a silicoxinum doesn't actually exist. So it's oh. nothing diluted oh. into nothingness is basically what this is. Gives you infinity. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the quick story. The, the, the researcher who thought that he discovered oxylococcinum was an incompetent microscopist and <laughs> mi- misinterpreted little air bubbles in his slides as if they were oscillating life forms, oscillating like bacteria-like organisms. So he was looking at diseased tissue, saw these little oscillating spheres – and thought he discovered the cause of whatever disease he was looking at. But, of course, he found those little oscillating spheres everywhere. So he thought he found the, the, the cause of all disease, rather than that he was just <laughs> looking at an artifact on the slide that he was too un, unschooled to recognize. So that's what the oscillococcinum is. It's never been seen or known to exist by anyone oh else. Oh, my God. It does not exist to science. It's a, it's a, it was an artifact of this guy's incompetence. Wow. He so also, they're the canals on Mars. It's, they're the canals on Mars, right. They're, and that's a reference to support Ullman's. You know, hang on. I'm, the, the best has, is yet to come. So that's, oh, that's, the, that's what we're talking about in terms of implausibility times implausibility. Um, <laughs> you, you take the liver and the heart of a certain kind of duck because that apparently has the most of this imaginary oscillococcinum and you dilute it into nothingness and that's your oscillococcinum re- remedy. And this is what Ullman thinks will, will help treat influenza. So there was a Cochrane review of studies looking at oxylococcinum for influenza. You know, Ullman says it works, and then this is his reference. But here, there's two, two huge problems with this reference. Here's the first one. This is what the conclusion actually says. Though promising, I guess Ullman didn't get past the first two words, though promising, mm-hmm. the data were not strong enough to make a general recommendation to use oscillococcinum for first-line treatment of influenza and influenza-like syndromes. Then the blah, 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 further research is needed, right? They always conclude with that. But again, it, it was insufficient evidence to say that it works. That's his big reference to show that oscillococcinum works for influenza. But there's a bigger problem with this reference, and it's astounding that Ullman referenced this without noting the fact that this uh, review, this Cochrane review, has been withdrawn. This is a withdrawn paper. <laughs> you look up the reference, the first word in big capital letters is withdrawn. What? In oh, front maybe. of the title. <laughs> maybe you thought it was a typo. <laughs> Withdrawn. Why was it withdrawn? Well, that's a good question. I mean, apparently, even these wishy-washy conclusions by these reviewers was an embarrassment to the Cochrane collaboration, and they decided to withdraw this review. <laughs> so oh, that's the quality boy. of the oh, evidence boy. that Ullman was was producing on his uh, big, you know, smackdown on homeopathy. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Uh. <laughs> The rest of the, so another thing that the article goes into is this recent research. We've got a lot of emails about this, so I wanted to comment on it. This recent research by Luc Montagnier. So this is a, a French researcher. He is actually a Nobel laureate. I actually mentioned him at the year-end review, as I think, at a recent episode for being a, sort of a Nobel laureate who has fallen from grace, if you will. He has uh, endorsed homeopathy, and he published a study in which he claims evidence – 
for radio signals from DNA that has been diluted basically out of existence. So he says that the water molecules have the imprint of the DNA and that those water molecules are emitting radio signals, right? Now, of course, uh, radio waves. Yeah, so homeopaths water. have seized upon this. A Nobel laureate has published research showing how homeopathy works. You know, John Bennett is beside, beside himself quoting this study, for example. <laughs> and Dana Ullman, Bennett is another homeopath. Dana Ullman, again, you know, creams over this study. Of course, <laughs> this study, despite the fact that it was done by a Nobel laureate, is complete and utter crap. P.C. Myers at Feringula wrote a really, a really thorough takedown of the study. Uh, they're pretty much the definitive evaluation. Essentially, what this guy was doing, what what Montagna was doing, was taking like a, a a PC, a computer, hooking up to it a really crude like radio signal detector, and then producing this noisy, worthless results because the system is so crude, and then publishing this noise as if it were data. It's laughable. It's completely laughable. What, what did he get his Nobel Prize in? Was it literature? <laughs> yeah, right. No, discovering, co-discoverer <laughs> of HIV. Co-discoverer of oh, HIV. Oh, yeah. wow. So it's unbelievable. The, the, the crapitude of that study is just mind-boggling. But now this be, has become a new pillar of the homeopathic community. Uh, one of the biggest fallacies that, that I fight against and what I do is the argument yeah. from authority. And this is just a classic example mm-hmm. of why it's a fallacy. I just uh, finished reading Massimo Pellucci's book, Nonsense on Stilts, which I highly recommend it to everyone. And in it, he contrasts what makes a person an expert with what makes a person smart. And I think it's a very good little section. Yeah. Not all smart people are experts, and experts aren't even experts except in one right. very small area. And Stephen and I, I think this just comes naturally to us because as physicians, you know, I do one little bitty thing. I'm an anesthesiologist. And everything else is done right. by some other specialist, and that works out really, really well. Uh, furthermore, experts should not go outside their field of expertise unless they are very clearly communicating the fact that what they're expressing right. is an opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and that just doesn't happen. But this is the type of thing that makes me feel very sorry for the uneducated or undereducated general public because they really rely on guys like uh, Montagna, and then he pulls this junk, and the scientific community, in my opinion, just does not come down right. hard enough on him. You know, mm-hmm. I looked up uh, what the scientific community had done, and Science published a very nice interview with him where he describes his data. It was a complete puff piece. Nature ignored it altogether. I haven't heard anything from the AAAS condemning this. In my opinion, when guys like Montagna do this stuff, the public face of science, in other words, the AAAS, science, nature, and so forth, they need to come down on him. Because if, if we don't police ourselves, if we don't publicly you know, condemn this type stuff, then I think we leave science as a paradigm open for all the nutcases to say, see, science is just exactly. another way of thinking. There, there's yeah, really nothing you, to it. And that's, and so of course, I, the, the, the raison d'etre of the skeptical community and a lot of science bloggers is to fill that void. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's what you guys are doing very, very well, and I appreciate you bringing this up because, uh, boy, if you look to the traditional sources of science, namely science and nature, you know, the, the, uh, the silence yeah, was yeah, definitely. Right. They don't want to taint themselves with it. 
but 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 then they that's uh, right. They it's almost like an endorsement, a tacit endorsement, because they're not condemning it. And then you have jackasses like Allman, who's a propagandist yeah, I, for homeopathy, completely exploiting it. Yeah, I think so, there should be a rule that however much uh, press Montagna got for winning the Nobel Prize, he should get an equal number of words in Science and Nature condemning you know all this yeah. nonsense. Yeah, un- yeah, until we start doing that as a scientific and skeptical community, you know, we're leaving ourselves wide open to the nutcases. Is he up for an Ig Nobel because of this? He should yeah. be. Yeah, yeah, yeah that would be should great. Be. He absolutely should be. Uh, let's do one more news item. There was uh, a recent uh, survey published looking at high school biology teachers and their teaching of evolution. Do you guys have a chance to take a look at this? Yes. This yes. is through my very, tears. Yes. Very disturbing. The bottom line was that the the majority, over like sixty percent of high school biology teachers, are taking a very wishy washy approach to evolution, never really presenting it as the scientific community would. You know that evolution is sort of key to our understanding of biology, and the evidence for the fact of of evolution is overwhelming. But they're sort of taking a wishy washy uh, or or quote unquote cautious approach to teaching it because I guess they don't want to be controversial and that this undermines the teaching of science, uh, you know, in general, not just, you know, evolution in specific and biology, but also science. About 13% of, uh, of teachers were explicitly creationist. Wow. So you, you, you add that to the 60, the 60% and 73% or three quarters of students are getting either, a creationist or a wishy-washy teaching of evolution in their public high school biology classes, which for many students may be the only science, you know, high school level science class that they're taking. So that is definitely a huge, a huge problem. I think this really illustrates that among the rank and file of Americans, we're really not making much progress on this, guys. Yeah, I know. I'd like to suggest a reason for this. And maybe this can something that can be discussed by the listeners or, or whatever. Uh, I have a rather unique perspective on this because I was born and raised in a fundamentalist Christian community. Good for I you. Attended, I, yeah, <laughs> I oh, attended yeah. parochial schools from grade one through high school, and then I went to a Bible college. Uh, se- seriously, a Bible With, college. Wow. That's, that's, wow. that's where I went to college. In high school and college, I was required to attend some form of church service Oh, I'd say about three times a day on average. Whoa. Okay. Whoa. Even today, you don't want to challenge me to a game of Bible trivial pursuit. <laughs> yeah. I, I will win. Uh, and, and I was a creationist all the way through med school and even for a short time after my residency. All right. So we're talking pretty intense stuff here. Mm-hmm. So I think I can make a claim to know the fundamentalist community. Mm-hmm. And the point that I want yeah, to make huh? is, is this. Uh, the problem here is that this community does not care what the science shows. Okay. Period. The, the problem is that the Bible is an inerrant, verbally inspired book and it teaches creationism. End of story. So if we want to address this problem, in my opinion, what we have to do is either directly or indirectly. And again, this is something where we should probably divide up our forces, uh, to conquer. You've got to address that problem. Yeah. I I personally did not give up creationism until I gave up the verbally inerrant Bible. Now today I'm an atheist and I've tossed it all out the window, but the point is I did not make that that first step 
until the the inerrant verbally inspired Bible issue was dealt with. And yeah. I think what this poll shows, I think what this study shows, is that these teachers, uh, especially at the local level in in local high schools and so forth, they are coming under pressure from this fundamentalist community, and they know how powerful politically that community is, and so they're not going to go out on a limb. They're not going to risk their job. Yeah. So I think if we want to address this, we we I wouldn't talk to people about evolution. I would try to talk to them about. Well, you know, why do you think the Bible is verbally inspired and so on and so on? And we need people that have my background, not not me necessarily, but people who have a background like mine, you know, to go into these communities and, and start that discussion. Yeah, well, we certainly haven't made much progress in terms of public opinion. And the fact that we've, you know, won court case after court case, and the science certainly is clear, hasn't seemed to really move the public opinion polls very much. So you certainly— That's right. Maybe yep. right in that in that respect. It is also very frustrating that despite you know winning in the in the courtroom, that the creationist strategy in terms of watering down the evolu- the education of evolution that they're they're winning just by intimidating science teachers out of teaching evolution, even though you know the courts uh, are supporting the teaching of evolution and and are knocking down. Any attempt by the creationists to insert, you know, their their religious beliefs in the classroom. So yeah, it's it is extremely frustrating to read statistics like this. Well, let's go on to who's that noisy? Who's that noisy? So this is the time in the show when we play an audio clip that relates to science or skepticism in some way, and we ask the listeners to identify that noise. I'm going to play for you last week's noise and see if you can identify it. Here you go. Now, Ray, were you able to hear that on your end? You know, I'd really like to say I wasn't, and therefore I uh, I can't comment on it. Uh, sadly, I was <laughs> able to hear it, and I still have no no clue what it was. <laughs> it's very obvious what it is, guys. The Death Star. Yes, move, moving into position around the planet, getting ready to destroy us. That, that's the sound my gut makes before I have to go to the bathroom. Oh, boy. Uh, several people guessed that it was the uh, infamous Hypnotoad from the Futurama cartoons. <laughs> which is <laughs> which, incorrect. Which, which I was amused by, but it is incorrect. It's, we'll, we'll save that one for for another day. Um, what that is are uh, this what is known as the singing sands. This is uh, part of the noise no. that sand dunes create. Oh, awesome! At, at at points in which you know basically they have uh, people rolling themselves down a sand dune, not rolling themselves, but scooting down a sand dune, creating the, the friction of the very small rocks that are, uh, that are coming down with them. And that's the noise it, it creates. That's one of many noises it creates. You can find these noises of singing sands in lots of places, YouTube and several other places on the Internet. So, Cool. Who got that correct? Who got that correct was Trinock from the message boards. He was the of first course. one to guess correctly. As he's done so many times in the past. Well done, my friend. And thank you to Sherry, a U.S. citizen who's living in China currently, who sent that in to us some time ago, and we just got around to using it. So thank you, Sherry. And what do you got for this week, Evan? All right. Here's this week's Who's That Noisy? Post hoc ergo proctor hoc. That's it. Ooh. That's all you get. Trixie. Some guy, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jay, you're this week's winner. Congratulations. Not much context guy. there. You just got to recognize the voice. You do. 
please post your messages on our forum or send us an email at info at the to submit your answers. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. We have time for a couple emails. First one comes from Lewis from Denver, Colorado. I've got a lot of email from Colorado for some reason. And Lewis writes, As all usually say, thanks for doing the show. After 18 months of listening, it still remains a weekly highlight to download a new episode. I have a question or proposal regarding the coverage of logical fallacies. I still consider myself fairly new to the skeptical community and continue to enjoy the exercise of name that logical fallacy. Much of the time spent on logical fallacies in the skeptical skeptical community relies on how to identify them. But as I hone my ability to discuss and debate topics, I have noticed that I fall short in my ability to counteract a particular fallacy. I would enjoy hearing more about effective ways to approach a logical fallacy once it is apparent. It is one thing to say, that's a straw man, but in my experience, that does little to return a discussion back to the argument at hand. Hopefully this makes sense, and thanks in advance. Congrats on being picked up on XM. Thank you, Lewis. For those who don't know, the uh, Skeptic's Guide is now being broadcast on XM 158, Saturday nights, 8 to 9 p.m., uh, Eastern Standard Time. Eastern Standard Time. Yep, and th- thank you. And uh, it's a, planet, planet Earth. A slightly shortened <laughs> one-hour version of the show. It's available for download in the full-length version, usually um, around noon on Saturday Eastern Time. So, yeah, this is a good question. Uh, essentially, it's like so now you've identified the logical fallacy in the <laughs> argument of the person that you're argue with, arguing with, and now what? Give an analogy. Give it an, a quick, a, a real quick analogy. For example, that, you know that's like saying blah blah blah. You know, and make it sound extra silly in your example. That's one way to deal with. Well, it, I you know, I, I I can hear the subtext of what the emailer is saying because it's the frustration of you're barely identifying and understanding the logical fallacy, right? There's so many of them, and there's so many variations on them. So you're you're kind of acknowledging just to yourself, okay? There's a logical fallacy here. And now you've got to do the Herculean effort of trying to explain it to them when you barely really get it yourself. And that is an incredible challenge to any critical thinker or skeptic. My take is that you have to put this into the context of what you're trying to accomplish in the discussion that you're having in the first place. I don't think that you can really make effective use of this unless your entire approach to the discussion is is appropriate. And which I, I know I've said before, which is basically that the goal of an argument should not be necessarily to convince the other person of your side or to quote-unquote win. The goal should be to find common ground. If you take the approach that if both people are starting from the same factual information and are employing valid logic, they must arrive at the same conclusion – You can reverse that and say if two people have come to different conclusions on a question, then there's there's only a few possibilities. One possibility is that there are different value judgments involved, and those Mm. those are not necessarily resolvable, but at the very least you could identify where they are and when they're the source of the disagreement. If there's no overwhelming value judgments, then either one or both people are using invalid logic or one or both are are, – basing their uh, conclusions on faulty premises, or they just have incomplete or maybe conflicting information. Right? So either the premises are wrong or conflicting or the, or the logic is invalid. So the, the goal of the, you know, the people having the discussion should be to figure out where they diverge 
and who's screwing up, right? Who's who's using incorrect logic, or whose facts are wrong, or maybe they just don't. You just don't have the facts, and then you can agree. Well, let's figure out what they are so that we can, you know, have a better opinion. If you're doing that, then identifying a logical fallacy is golden because now you've identified one of the causes of the differences of opinion, and you can fix it. But both people have to be on board with that. Um, if if the other person is just trying to win or defend a position at all costs, identifying their logical fallacies is good for an onlooker. It's not really going to have much uh, use for the person that you're arguing with. They're probably just going to take it as a personal attack and commit yet another logical fallacy to defend themselves. <laughs> right. Yeah. If if I could just be a wet blanket one more time here, uh, <laughs> I, I think you might even be overestimating uh, – the intelligence of the people that Lewis is arguing with. Uh, I, I, I would refer you to uh, a very good book by Susan Jacoby. I, I hope I'm saying her name right. The Age of American Unreason. And in it, she talks about the love-hate relationship that America has with uh, with higher education and, and intellectuals. And the bottom line is that some people just don't trust pointy-headed smart people. Okay, They just don't trust them. And furthermore, they don't trust higher education, and they certainly don't trust that stupid thing that they've heard called logic. All right? They trust their gut. I know the community that I was raised in, uh, the community that I was in the first quarter century of my life, they don't care if they've committed ten logical fallacies. Their gut tells them they're right. So I think before you even get to all the very good advice that you guys have said, I think you have to ask yourself, is is this person open to thinking? Is this person open to being mm-hmm. educated about right. critical thought? And in my opinion, based based strictly on my experience, uh, mo- most often they're not. Well, Ray, you know we've we've talked about how to approach these types of conversations, and there's different kinds, of course, and at different levels of intensity or whatever. And we usually give the advice. You know, you're never going to win someone over in one big fell swoop, like hitting them over the head with a frying pan type of deal. It's it's small little nudges. You know, give them something to think about. And Steve, I like the way Steve put it too. It's you know, you got to think contextually. What's this discussion about? What could my what's a reasonable goal I could have here? You know, I think the emailer's talking about he's having a lively discussion with some people, some friends, and he's trying to. You know, he's identified a logical fallacy that they that they've stated, and he wants to be able to turn that into a rebuttal or some type of way of communicating back to them. Right. No, but but even there, you're assuming that the purpose of this discussion is to convince the other person of a position. But Steve, that's what the it seems like. That's what the emailer is yeah, asking. But I'm, I'm just backing up a little bit and saying, you know, it depends on the context of what your goal is. Sometimes when I'm arguing with somebody else, my only goal is to hone my own arguments. Or, right, or, right. or my goal, no, seriously, or my goal might be to understand the crappy logic that the other side is using. I want to really dissect it to see where their major malfunction is. So it's almost like a, a, a pathology dissection, you know, where I'm trying to figure out what, what's, what's, what's where, where are they going wrong? Where are they going wrong? But if you want to convince them, then you have to establish, then what I recommend is first establish the common ground. Get them to agree 
that this is about logic and evidence. If you can't get them to agree with that, then there's no point in going beyond that. There's no point mm-hmm. in talking about logic Walk and evidence away. until yep. you've gotten them to agree that we're going to resolve this. We're together. We're going to figure out what the best conclusion is based upon logic and evidence. Once they've That's bought too in, much work. Once they've bought into that, <laughs> yeah, but you know, again, it depends on what your goal is. If your goal yeah. is to actually come to a common ground, you've got to get them to buy into it. If they do, then you can, in a very non-confrontational, non-judgmental way, you know, pick through your own logic and their logic, and then try to, you know, try to, you know, depersonalize it, remove yourself from it a little bit, and look at the arguments more in the abstract. Does that argument really? say this? Is it really valid? Not you're invalid or you're committing a logical fallacy, but this argument I don't think is quite valid because it's relying upon this, which is, which is not legitimate. Um, of course, you know, the other, another context might be that it's an email that you've received from somebody and you're about to make fun of that email in front of 80,000 listeners. Uh, that's yet another context. So here's, let's go on to name that logical fallacy this is a uh, an email that we received last week from Chris Weller from Australia. Oh boy! <laughs> and Chris writes, "Notice that you really have a huge chip on your shoulder about creationists, and yet while your descriptions of the type of arguments they use may be accurate, that does not negate their conclusions. Personal opinion on a subject does not automatically make you correct either." Indeed, as there are so many inexplicable things that science cannot fathom, simply does not rule out a creator. I'm I'm reading this accurately. Let's face it, if there is a creator of all things, then we have to pretty much guarantee, irrespective of all possible clever arguments to the contrary, his arrogant creations put forward, he would have to be much smarter than they could ever be. So there's a, there's you know a lot of logical fallacies in there, um, and again this is a let's do our pathology dissection. See where where Chris is going awry in his logic here. So he opens up with, "You have a huge chip on your shoulder about creationists." No, we don't. <laughs> you lie. Those, those damn creationists are always saying that. That is under the category of an ad hominem attack in that. He, he's opening up by making it about us. We have a we have a chip on our shoulder rather than about the logic and the evidence. It's also a kind of a poisoning the well, which is also sort of a, an ad hominem strategy right. where mm-hmm. you know he, he wants to taint our position and our arguments by making it seem like we have some kind of problem to try to make it about something other than the logic and the evidence that bears on the question. The, he next goes into something which I find... Very, very common. You guys let me know if you encountered this before. He essentially says that while your arguments may be accurate, you're still wrong. Yeah, it didn't make, that didn't make much sense to me. Yeah. Um, but I, but were, I encounter that all the time. Oh, no, that's a, that's a very common argument yeah. uh, coming from the creationist community, the, the fundamentalist community. No, that's, I've heard that a hundred times. Yeah, essentially what they're saying is I can't think of anything that's wrong with any of your arguments. But I still don't believe you. I still think that I'm right and you're wrong, which is just again just a way. That, that's uh, a big oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's just that, yeah. that's a big oh yeah. It's basically like la 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 la. I can't hear you. You you, you know, there's nothing invalid about your logic and your facts are all correct, but you're still wrong. Which of course is a non sequitur. If if my premises are correct and my logic is valid, I have to be correct. You can't also be wrong. Not, so, not if you throw God into the equation. Well, that, right. well, and that's what he does, right? Then he goes and, and on And that's to, what he's doing. That's exactly yeah. right. 
Yeah, line two here is the big doozy to me. Yeah. Um, so then, well, then he says, personal opinion on a subject does not automatically make you correct either. So now that's a non sequitur. He's equating logic and evidence with personal opinion, trying to downgrade our arguments to just personal opinion. And then he says, the inexplicable things that science cannot fathom simply does not rule out a creator. So you may be right in all your sciencey logic, but... The things you can't explain. God's inexplicable. So that's if, if science if science can't fathom it, it's not science. It's outside of science. Right, right. This is also a version of God of the gaps. Yeah. Okay. There's things that science can't explain, so therefore there's a creator. Also irrelevant. So this is big non sequitur. That's three non sequiturs and two. Yeah. Sentences. This is that's this is good. Sagan's uh, invisible dragon here too. Well, the, the invisible dragon was an example of special pleading, which I don't know, I don't know that he's doing that specifically here. He's making the inexplicable argument, basically an, an appeal to, to ignorance. You know, there are things we don't know, therefore, maybe one of those things we don't know makes you wrong. We can't know that you're not wrong because we don't know everything. So I'm going to just assume that you're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> that, that's essentially it's the like argument. A tantrum. It's like an intellectual tantrum. He's throwing yeah, basically. There's, there's, basically. There's nothing intellectual about this. <laughs> no, but, but this gets back to what I was saying earlier about the inerrancy of the Bible. If you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and it's verbally inspired, yeah. then by definition, novella et, et al. have to be wrong. Okay, right, yeah. you may have you may have all the arguments on yeah. your side. You may be using that weird thing called logic correctly, but you're still wrong. And right. and that's what this guy is saying. They're starting with the absolute certainty that you know they're correct that there's a creator and that evolution is wrong, and therefore. There's got to be something wrong with those scientist arguments. I'm not going to bother figuring out what it is. I'm just comfortable in the notion that there's got to be something wrong with them. And then he denigrates them with the with the word clever. You know, so clever is a very specific word that he in quotes to. too. He put it in, in quotes in, in, yeah. scare, in scare quotes. That kind of the use of the word clever is an anti-intellectual argument, right? He's basically mm. saying that your facts and large logic just make you clever, meaning deceptive and manipulative. Right. That's the connotation. Like Satan? Like say right. But, <laughs> but it doesn't make you right. You can still be wrong. And it doesn't matter how clever you are. Yeah, because in his last line, yeah. he argues that God, in order to make intelligent beings like us would have to be so much more intelligent than us, then we'd, we would never be able to unravel his puzzle. Right. And, but does that also imply that God's being deceptive? Oh, he works in mysterious ways. An all-powerful yeah. being absolutely could deceive us into believing whatever he wanted us to believe. That's sort of the God put the fossils there to fool us argument, That's right? That's right, yeah. And, and don't forget his big out his big out here in this last sentence. So, irrespective of all possible clever arguments, that's a wide net. Yeah, oh, Any, yeah. <laughs> anything we could come up with, yeah. even an AI, you know, is yeah. No matter what you say, you're still wrong. No matter what you could possibly say, I, I appreciate Chris writing us for real. You know, it took it took takes balls for him to write us. You know, he really wasn't being like over the top argumentative or insulting. I mean, he... No, I that, think, that's true. I think Chris legitimately put this out there and is interested to hear what we have to say. You know, I'd like to challenge Chris to uh, to to dig a little deeper. Yeah. For real. For real. To look past what he assumes is correct and, and to just maybe pick up a book and read something that, that's a little bit out of his uh, out of his ken. You yeah, know? but I'll go farther than that. First of all, I want to, I do want to make this clear because we, we do try on this show to make sure that we attack arguments and not people. And we also have to we go after the promoters of nonsense, not the victims of it. So my default assumption with 
with uh, people like Chris is that he's a victim of a systematic campaign of misinformation, a very sophisticated campaign of misinformation. Oh, yeah. And you know, so I don't, I don't, we're not trying to like, like go after him or, or, or make him seem like he's like the enemy or part of the problem. I, I see him as somebody who needs to be educated. In a way, he's reaching out. And I think that he's been victimized by creationist propaganda. All of these arguments we've encountered before, there's a reason for that. It's because these are the arguments that are being promoted to provide cover for, for a pseudoscience, for the pseudoscience of creationism. Um, I'll also put to Chris, if you, if you do want to get into this further, I'll challenge you to give me one legitimate creationist argument or criticism of evolution. Just pick one. Just give me one. And, you know, I'll, I'll happily address it. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Ray, are you ready for your first science or fiction? I, I am, but I have a disclaimer that I would I would like to say first. Okay. I, I just want to say that uh, while I thoroughly enjoy science or fiction, I believe that the real purpose of this exercise is to show that the universe is not intuitive, rather mm-hmm. than to reveal how much knowledge about science anybody does or does not have. Now, one reason that I believe this is because I totally suck at science or fiction <laughs> and therefore uh, must rationalize in some fashion why I am totally bad at it. Yeah, I agree that often that you, you just got to get lucky to get this right. But but uh, sometimes, you know, there, there's a certain amount of just scientific knowledge that you could use as a foundation to help kind of just figure it out. And though, when that does happen, and it's not often... To me, that's the most rewarding when I could use information that I have to figure out the likelihood of some of these. And that does happen sometimes, and I love it when it does. Of course, I often pick items that are counterintuitive. I know. That's why it makes that hard. (laughs) All right, well, let's see how you do this week. Item number one, a recent analysis of a hadrosaur fossil finds that the dinosaur lived 700,000 years after the KT extinction that supposedly killed off all non-avian dinosaurs. Item number two, a study of subjects trying to quit smoking indicates that fMRI analysis of their brain activity is more predictive of their success than their self-assessment. Item number three, scientists report that as many as 20% of all North American bats are infected with rabies. Ray, as our guest, you get to go first. Okay, well, let's take them in order. A recent analysis about fossils showed that the dinosaur lived 700,000 years after the KT extinction. Sure, I can buy that. It seems to me that when the dinosaurs went extinct, changes pretty much every year. And if we now think they lived longer than they did, sure, I I can go with that. A study of subjects trying to quit smoking indicates that the fMRI knows more about them than they do. I can I can see that I I do trust technology uh, more than self-reporting, so I can go along with that. Uh, scientists report that 20% of North American bats are infected. My wife is a vet, so yeah, I I do know that bats are carriers. 20%, uh, I think that's just way too high. I live in a very rural area, and we see bats all the time. And I've never seen one uh, foaming at the mouth or trying to attack me. Going to go with anecdote. I I, I am because again, <laughs> okay. when I've tried to go with science, uh, I've lost every one. So, yep, uh, item number three. That's and if you have any sense at all, all of you will bet against me. So there we go. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's see, Bob. 
Oh man, I don't want to. I don't know if I should agree with Ray here, but um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I I agreed with a lot of what he said. Um, it, I think I think it's possible that a uh, hadrosaur could have lived beyond the KT extinction. Seven hundred thousand years is a hell of a long time, but I'm not sure how big they actually were. But uh, I can kind of buy that one. And um, the quitting smoking with the fMRI, yeah, self assessments are just so notoriously crappy. That I could see how an fMRI could uh, could see some pattern that uh, that could actually help with uh, predicting success of, of uh, quitting smoking. Um, so yeah, so that one as well. Th- the third one here, even though Ray ag- Ray thinks it's fiction, I'm gonna um, have to agree with him um, mainly on principle alone because I I love bats and I hate how everybody or a lot of people just assume that oh bats give you rabies and they fly in your hair and all these stupid myths. <laughs> about bats, when bats are such such a beautiful and incredibly useful mammal, that they're, they're just amazing. And the one, the uh, the fruit bats I saw in Australia just blew me away. One of the highlights of of Australia. I've always wanted to see uh, huge fruit bats. So uh, yeah, I'm just in principle alone. I'm going to say that 20 percent of them having rabies is way is way too high. So I'm going to have to say that one is um, that one is fiction. Okay, Evan. So so you're agreeing with me, Bob? Yes. Okay. I've, yes, I, I am. I, I just want you to know I've lost all respect for you. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, let, let's wait a few Join, minutes, shall we? Join the club, Ray. 700,000 years after the KT extinction. Seems like a long time, but I'm um, not really all that surprised. Supposedly killed off all non-avian dinosaurs. Uh, so I thought it was between my initial assessment was that it was going to be between the smoking one and the bats. Um, I have no idea about this fMRI analysis of their brain activity. I really don't have anything I think to add to that one. I may just go with the uh, with the flock here and uh, say that the number twenty percent is is, t- is too high for North American bats. I agree with you, Bob. Bats are very very cool and very friendly, very misunderstood. They do not turn people into vampires first and foremost. So let's get that straight right away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they turn them into werewolves. Um, 20% seems like a very high number, so I agree with both Bob and Ray. That one is fiction. Okay, Jay. You know, I like to not go with what the group does, but I really do think that that bat one is is the fake. I think it's dramatically less than that, and I, I agree with Bob. I mean, growing up, I always heard, you know, bats have rabies and all that. Anyway, yeah, I'm going to go with that one as the fake. Go with the crowd? All right. All right, I guess I'll take them in order then. Item number one, a recent analysis of a hadrosaur fossil finds that the dinosaur lived 700,000 years after the KT extinction that supposedly killed off all non-avian dinosaurs. That one is science. Yay. Uh, this, is, this is very interesting. I thought this was actually a big deal. It's a, it is a long time. I've been trying to figure out how much of a controversy there actually is about whether or not an asteroid, you know, definitely an asteroid hit the Earth 65 million years ago, left the you know the iridium layer at the KT boundary. Definitely mm-hmm. there was a mass extinction at that time. The question is, is, did that asteroid really fully responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs and many other species? Or was there other things going on that were contributing to and maybe even the primary cause of the extinction? My sense is that from talking to, you know, to certain paleontologists and whatnot, that, that, that the consensus was it was the impact hypothesis is, mm. is the leading theory. But I was speaking recently to, uh, to uh, Donald Prothrow, who we had interviewed at TAM, and he said that, no, actually a lot of paleontologists do not think that that's the case, that the fossil evidence does not really support that. It's more the geologists who, th- who are impressed with the impact theory, but the actual paleontologists 
say that the paleontological evidence is much less clear. This would actually go along with that. So, but 700,000 years is still a long time after, after the event. This study, which is interesting, uses a, a fairly new technique of dating fossils, but it looks at the isotopic composition of lead uh, in, the, in the fossil based upon you know, fossils, uh, bones as they fossilize will incorporate a certain amount of uranium atoms, which will then decay into lead. So you can use that ratio to, to date the fossil itself, and that is supposed to be a very accurate method. Uh, so by using this method, they dated this one fossil bone to 700,000 years after the, you know, the, the, the point at which all non-avian dinosaurs should have gone extinct. Non-avian dinosaurs is basically what everyone thinks of as dinosaurs except for birds. If you're a cladist and you count birds as a branch of dinosaurs, it's now in vogue to refer to you know, dinosaurs as non-avian dinosaurs. Gotcha. Okay. Because birds are technically dinosaurs. All right. We got it. Yeah. Go ahead. Gotcha. All right. Let's go on to number two. You guys all believe this one also. A study of subjects trying to quit smoking indicates that fMRI analysis of their brain activity is more predictive of their success than their self-assessment. And this one is also science. Oh, yeah, baby. Good job, everyone. Wow. Wait, I would like to... Really thank and applaud Ray. Yes, he went. I made him go for first. leading the way. <laughs> for leading a clean sweep. Hey, even the blind hog finds the acorn occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> fMRI is a functional MRI. It's a way of looking at actual real time uh, activity. Yeah, in real time of the brain. And what the researchers did was you know, they took a cohort of people who were trying to quit smoking. They asked them they, – they actually showed them commercials, like public uh, service announcements, like trying to c- convince them into quitting smoking. They had them rate the commercials and how they felt about them, how they reacted to them, and then also you know, rate you know, what they thought about their chances of success. And then you know, they, they tried to quit smoking over a period of time, and they reassessed them. Uh, afterwards, they they asked them how well they did as well as independently, like they measured carbon monoxide levels in their breath to, to verify how many cigarettes they were smoking. And then they also quizzed them again about the commercials. Now, what they found was that the, you know, looking at the response of their brains to the commercials, those commercials that they – later remembered and reported as being successful or impactful on them had more of a reaction than other commercials that didn't affect them as much, despite their assessment of the, of their reaction to the commercials at the time and how that were likely to influence their success rate. So the, what uh, the researchers c- concluded from this is that this may indicate that what the fMRI scans are showing us is that these commercials may be having a subconscious effect on them or may be affecting them in a way that they're not totally aware of, but that was actually more predictive of their ability to quit smoking than what they were conscious of at the time in terms of how the commercials consciously affected them and what they consciously thought about their chances of success. And that's interesting. It actually makes sense. I mean, I think things like behaviors like smoking, which are addictive, and those kind of things are so much subconscious processing that's going on that's influencing our behavior. It doesn't surprise me that we'll be able to see, you know, in a crude way, the, the uh, magnitude of that subconscious processing that probably has more control over our behavior than we would like to think. 
So let's go on to number three. Scientists report that as many as 20% of all North American bats are infected with rabies, and that one is the fiction. Oh, yeah. Did any of you actually read this study? Nope. Nope. So there was a study recently published that showed the opposite, that uh, far fewer bats are infected than were previously believed. Uh, Previous estimates were based upon uh, largely on people like bringing bats into centers or into veterinary uh, uh, hospitals. The percentage of those bats that were either sick or were involved in a bite or something, you know, that maybe five to 10% were um, infected with rabies. But this uh, more thorough analysis showed uh, and, and sort of more like a canvassing of bats is that less, far less than 1% are infected with rabies. Yes. So it's actually less than what was previously thought. Sweet. So good job, everyone. Yay. Well done. Good job, Ray. Thank you. Thank you. Got a 100% uh, rate on science fiction. Ooh. Doing better than Rebecca. <laughs> Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? You know I have a quote. You sent me the quote. I did send you the quote. What did I send you? Oh, the truth. Oh, yeah. lot of trouble that got us into, didn't it? Over the last maybe thousand years, Hitler knew the truth. So did Stalin. So did Mao Zedong. So did the Inquisition. They all knew the truth, and that caused such horror. Certainty is the enemy. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Who we just found out. (laughs) He's a (laughs) non-believer. Who is an agnostic atheist. So, I had some truth with fava beans. <laughs> this quote came out of uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins' new movie, The Right, in which he played. I haven't seen the movie yet, and actually, like my wife and I were watching the commercials for it, and we're intrigued. Like, which way are they? Which direction are they going here? Anthony Hopkins plays a, a Catholic priest who does exorcisms and believes that Satan is a you know a real power or agent working in the world. And the question was: Is this guy? For real, or is you know this priest character delusional, and you know Hopkins is playing this character as a, as an agnostic atheist, and there was a bit of a conflict there. He wanted the so he he says in an interview that he actually wrote at least you know one line for this character to inject a little bit of ambiguity and doubt into this character, you know, to make it more um, in line with his own you know beliefs, so that he could have an easier time becoming this character. And this is something else that he was quoted as saying. This is not this quote is not in the movie, but it was him sort of expressing the notion that, you know, the basically defending his agnosticism. People who think they know the absolute and final truth, that's that's the problem. Is that we all have to be humble enough to know that there are things that we don't that cannot be known. I also have a quick announcement. The SGU has instituted a new segment of the show in which we are going to um, allow so, uh, a certain chosen listeners to ask their questions live on the show. So we actually will bring you on the show and we'll you get to ask your question and we'll discuss it rather than just us reading your question. Then there are criteria. We need to make sure that technically you're able to you know, get good audio, basically, and you can communicate with us over Skype, etc. So if you want the particulars, again, you can go to the forums uh, and... Uh, again, I'll have the link for you know the the thread that discusses all the things you need to have. Basically, you need to be available. Usually, it's Wednesday night when we record the show. You have to have Skype. You have to have a microphone and headphones. 
um, and you have to have an interesting question. When, if you're sending us a question that you want to actually come on the show to discuss, just put at the top of the body of the email to discuss live on the show. That way I'll know that you want us to get back in touch with you and, and set up uh, the live discussion. Cool. Yep, should be fun. So thanks for joining me this week, everyone. And Ray, thanks for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you. Guys, Ray. Had a really great Thank time. You, Thank you all so much. It was, it was a great experience. Thanks so great much. Great job. Great thanks. job. Thank you. Well done. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For information on this and other episodes, please check out our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. Please send any feedback, suggestions, or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org or send us a message on the Contact Us page on our website. Also, please help spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes or your aggregator of choice. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission.